Welcome to New Human Living Radio Show, bringing you powerful interviews to awaken the power in you. Learn more at newhumanliving.com. And now your host, Les Jensen. So, let me ask you a question. Who here has experience with life? I mean, they're experienced about living life. Go ahead, raise your hand. Yep, yep. We all have experience living our life, right? And over time, we can kind of feel a sense of, um, like, normalcy, a a sense of familiar um, experience. And and we can kind of settle into a place where we're, we're comfortable that we understand how life works. Now, tonight's show is is a delightful topic. I'm so delighted. The topic of tonight's show is, do you really need spine surgery? And our guest tonight is Dr. David Henscombe. We're going to bring him on in just a minute. But, but I want to go back to that notion of, well, sure, you're experienced. Sure, you know how life works. You've, you've been around a while. And how could there be... How could there be elements of life that perhaps we're not totally aware of? How could there be mechanisms in our own psychology or our own persona that perhaps has a much stronger influence on our life than our conscious mind is aware of? Um, Like hidden mechanisms, subconscious um, motivators, if you will. But I, I, I want you to have an open mind because I think this episode's going to kind of stir things up as far as um, what we think is uh, normal, as far as how our physiology works, our relationship to pain. And uh, I know there's a lot of people on the planet that put up with chronic pain. And oftentimes the the mindset behind chronic pain can be kind of pigeonholed into a, a, a very narrow perspective about the mechanics of how things work. And tonight's episode is going to kind of turn that on its head. And, and again, I'm so delighted for it. Now, the topic again is, do you really need spine surgery? And our guest, Dr. David Hanscom. Dr. David is an orthopedic complex spinal deformity surgeon who was based in Seattle, Washington. He quit his practice and is on a mission to reintroduce true healing. I like that right there. Reintroducing true healing into medicine. He believes that doctors should spend quality time with their patients so they can listen and understand their situation. His most recent book, the topic of tonight's show, Do You Really Need Spine Surgery? Take Control with a Spine Surgeon's Advice. Join me in welcoming David to the show. David, so nice to have you on the show tonight. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Now, when I first saw your book, Do You Really Need Spine Surgery? 
what really struck me with that is you're stepping out of the, um, what should I say, mainstream thought process. I mean, you're bringing up uh, even the question that says, do I really need to go down this path? I, I mean, chronic pain in the United States, let alone the world, chronic pain is a very serious issue. It's uh, it's influencing so many people. What made you kind of give us the 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 overall picture of why you came to question spine surgery? I mean, you're you're a, you're a surgeon. And then you turn around and you end up questioning it. Give us the background of that, please. So I trained in a very high-level spine fellowship in Minneapolis, Minnesota, in 1985-86. And I came out for about eight years being very aggressive doing spine surgery because that's what I was trained to do. And so as I talk about this, I don't want to throw my colleagues under the bus because we're trained a certain way. And that is, if there's pain, there must be some cause of the pain. Well, you'll find out by the end of the show, the pain is just a signal. It just says danger. It can be generated from many sources besides the structures around the spine. In fact, the structures that are thought to be the sources of pain are are actually not the sources of pain. So I did, you know, dozens and dozens of surgeries. Seattle had nine times the rate of spine fusions as any place else in the country for back pain. Then the data came out seven years later that showed that the success rate of a spine fusion for back pain was 22%. And I go, excuse me? And I just stopped. I said, I don't know what to do exactly, but 22% success rate is not acceptable. And plus, these are big operations. And I honestly thought that the data would show that a success rate would be you know, 90 95% because it's such a big operation. Meanwhile, I went into chronic pain myself for about 13 years. I developed 17 different symptoms of chronic pain. And nobody could tell me I could not understand what happened, and I could not understand how I came out of it. And around 2009, 2010, I started to come together. And the last five years of neuroscience research has been really compelling. So we now now understand chronic pain very clearly. The answers, answers have actually been in the medical literature for over 20 years, and mainstream medicine right now has simply overlooked it. And so I quit my practice two years ago because I was seeing so many patients go to pain-free with minimal interventions and then having major spine surgery that was damaging that would have horrible outcomes. And I, the difference was so great, I just could not watch it anymore. So I quit. But I want to finish this with saying that there's not one research paper in 60 years, not one, that says spine surgery works for back pain, not one. Well, with that, uh, with that statement, why does it even exist? I mean, how did it get so prominent if there's not the metrics behind it to reinforce it? Well, I'll give the simplistic answer, which I don't like, but it's true, is that you know, it's very financially viable for the hospitals to push spine surgery, and there's a belief system that's the way we're trained. So what happens, the high-volume spine centers that generate the most revenue have the most say over the hospitals. The hospitals actually encourage us to do the procedure, then we train our fellows and residents to do the same thing, so they don't know any difference. So it's become a very self-perpetuating cycle. So back in around 10 years ago, there's about 700,000 spine surgeries done a year, maybe 500,000 spine surgeries done a year, with probably 60% of those not being necessary. 
I looked last week. There's now over 1.2 million spine surgeries done a year in the United States alone, and probably 80% of those should not be done. The problem is the downside of a failed spine surgery is horrible. People are often worse than they started. The success rate of back pain fusions are 22%. And actually, the chance of making it worse is about 40%. You actually have double the chance of making it worse than you do getting better. So it comes down to financial reasons. Nobody... So, again, no data. Spine surgery is now upwards of 20 to $25 billion a year just for spine surgery. Yeah. So it's about the financial gain part of it, and the hospitals are pushing us to do it. Spine surgery is a lucrative income source for the hospitals, and we're actually being pushed to do an operation that actually doesn't work. And, and since we're trained to do it, that's what we do. Right. Well, okay, so let's let's approach this from the listener's point of view. So I'm, 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 I have chronic back pain right. as an example. I don't myself, but it, metaphorically, and, and I've been told that I need surgery. I've been told the, the, the party line, so to speak, of here's what needs to happen, like you said. Um, Bring the perspective into this conversation where there's other choices. I mean, you're talking about a 22% success rate for traditional spinal surgery, and then right. you've left your you've you've left that dynamic and and found a whole new uh, response curve, if you will, a whole new metric of success that dwarfs the the mainstream. Give us some understanding about what you're really talking about here. Right. So let me just jump back into chronic pain in general or just chronic disease. It's not just chronic pain, by the way. It's just chronic disease. So every symptom in your body is created by your brain and nervous system interpreting the environment and then creating appropriate responses so you survive. Right? That makes sense? Right. So every symptom, whether if you're on the beach in the sun, you're relaxed, your skin's warm, your heart rate is slower, your muscles are relaxed, your body's full of what's called anti-inflammatory cytokines, so you feel relaxed. Relaxed is just a description of that sensation that you feel on the beach. Now, if you're threatened while your body's full of adrenaline and cortisol and histamines and all sorts of stress chemicals, and you feel tense, and the word that we use for that is anxiety. And anxiety is just the word that describes the situation of your body when you are under threat. So anxiety is a response to a threat. It's not the cause. Anxiety is a physiological issue, not primarily psychological. So anxiety is just the word that describes the sensation generated by your body's response to a threat. Every symptom in your body, mental and physical, is created by your body responding to the environment in a way to stay alive and survive. The sensation that we call anxiety is intended to be so unpleasant that it forces the living creature to take survival action to survive. It's intended to be unpleasant. It's also necessary. If you didn't have anxiety, you wouldn't survive. It's powerful. This unconscious response processes about 20 million bits of information per second. Do you know how much the conscious brain processes? I'll just ask this rhetorically. I'm not expecting the right answer here. But your unconscious brain, your pupils are constricting and dilating, you're blinking automatically, 
your hands coordinated to write. All this stuff is automatic, which is phenomenal. That's 20 right. million bits of information per second. Do you know how much the conscious brain processes? No. 40, 40, 20 million versus 40. So, so you half. can't control it. What's that? You, so it's half. No, I no, mean, 20, 20, 20, no, 20, no, 40 bits, not 40 million, just 40, 40. <laughs> oh, okay, it's 20 million versus 40. Right, right, so 95, I mean, Bruce Lipton talks about 95, 95% of your brain is unconscious or subconscious. Um, it's probably more than that, but let's say 95% of your brain's function is automatically allowing you to survive on this planet. It's the same thing my cat has. She survives on this planet by seeking food. She avoids danger. She does what she does, but it's all automatic. She doesn't have consciousness. I mean, there's a big debate about whether animals have consciousness or not, but they don't have language. They don't have abstract thinking. They don't have art. So there's a level of awareness that animals have, but humans have language, which gives us consciousness. So that conscious brain processes about 40 bits of information per second, and the unconscious brain, which is phenomenal, electrolytes, blood pressure, your kidney function, blood function, all that's an autonomic pilot. It's phenomenal. So what keeps us alive is our autonomic response or unconscious response to the environment. So again, if you're under threat, now here's the kicker. This is really critical in this whole process, and this is actually why I quit my practice. We have to get this right. So human beings or any living creature is designed to gravitate towards safety, in other words, to regenerate and fill up the tank again, and then we automatically avoid threat, of course, to survive. So the way we survive is we avoid threat and we gravitate towards safety. The problems that humans have is we have consciousness, we have thoughts. Turns out that thoughts and emotions and repressed thoughts and emotions are just, a, just as much of a threat as a physical threat, like viruses and bacteria and bullies and predators. Those are physical threats. But the mental threats are processed the same way as the physical threats, but humans cannot escape their thoughts, cannot escape them. And repressing your thoughts is even a worse problem than expressing them. It's a huge problem. So you have threat versus safety. Humans cannot escape their thoughts. So every human being is subjected to an ongoing set of thoughts. So what happens, you have sustained threat and your body has sustained inflammatory cytokines, you're having heightened metabolism, you actually start destroying your tissues because of this heightened metabolism. The inflammatory response actually destroys tissues. So it turns out that cardiovascular disease, peripheral vascular disease, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's disease, adult onset diabetes are all inflammatory disorders. And so what happens is that chronic threat causes physical symptoms. So if you have a, sh a short threat, you have an, a symptom. If you have more of a sustained threat, you have an illness. And then prolonged threat develops disease. So the body translates your environment into physical manifestations, every one of them. Well, then, I mean, you're talking about um, uh, a tendency to repress uh, thoughts or emotions. Um, how do we get so naive to to the notion that we're accumulating in our psyche? I mean, we're repressing aspects of ourselves that turn around and lead to a chronic situation. 
Right. Well, it was, first of all, anxiety is necessary. I mean, if you didn't have anxiety, you wouldn't survive more than about two minutes because you wouldn't breathe. I mean, your body gives a signal that you have air hunger. It says you have to breathe. And if you, if your breath is deprived for, you know, three or four minutes, of course, you become really anxious. And, of course, you do everything you can to breathe. So anxiety is just a signal that says danger, just like pain is a signal that says danger. It turns out that essentially anxiety is the pain. And it turns out that the mental threats are a bigger problem than the physical threats because with physical threats, you usually solve the situation to relieve yourself of the physical threat and you move on. With mental threats, you can't escape it. So that sustained exposure to unpleasant thoughts and emotion creates this reaction that's very uncomfortable, very unpleasant. It's powerful. But I wrote a website post called Anxiety, Your Bodyguard or Your Prison Guard. So anxiety is a gift. It keeps you alive. It's how we evolved. It's what you have. It's not who you are. So you get to watch it. It's amoral. It's unpleasant. And it's a gift that keeps you alive. But it's not who you are. When, you identif- when your identity gets mixed in with this powerful survival reaction, then it's your prisoner. So we get, pris- we get imprisoned and manipulated by our fears. And so once you understand that this is necessary, you get to develop a working relationship with it. And then you can, your conscious brain can thrive. But if you're trying to constantly fight off anxiety, try to control it, solve it, it's like trying to stop a dragster with bicycle handbrakes. You can't do it. So what consciousness does, you can't control the anxiety, but what consciousness does, it gives you the steering wheel of that dragster. You can guide it. So it's a solvable problem. And what's exciting for me, I went from a fearless spine surgeon to crippling anxiety in one day. I cannot contain it for another 13 years. Remember, the antidote to anxiety is control. And one of the solutions is that you learn tools to separate from the anxiety, calm down this survival response, and as you calm down the survival response, the sensation that we call anxiety calms down. So that's what we call somatic work of actually learning how to regulate your body's chemistry in a way that allows you to, again, anxiety is that sensation generated by the stress response. As you learn the tools to lower that chemical reaction, then you start feeling a lot better. But that's, again, mm-hmm. accessing the subconscious brain, not the conscious brain. So when the anxiety subsides, the inflammation subsides and the pain subsides? Right. Again, I'm going to say it the other way around. So as the inflammation subsides, then the anxiety survives. In other words, anxiety is just that word we use to describe the inflammatory response. So as you learn means to control and drop down the inflammatory response, then then the anxiety drops down dramatically. So the most enjoyable part of this process for me by far and away is that um, people not only go to pain-free because what happens is this inflammation doubles the nerve conduction. You actually feel the pain more. When you go to a sense of safety, why your nerve conduction improves dramatically because you're full of, of growth hormone and serotonin and dopamine. So you have a great chemical bath that actually slows down nerve conduction. You feel better. And so, so which again, you're changing your body's physiology or changing your body's chemistry to a more optimum profile, and you just feel a lot better. So I'm going to say this you know, in an odd way. None of this is psychological. When we, look at, we look at anxiety as a psychological construct. It is not subject to rational control. It is the unconscious brain, not the conscious brain. So the mental threat is, you can call that the psyche. I'm not against that. But the actual response that we feel, that sensation we call anxiety, is physiological. Right. 
Well, now you're talking about the mechanism, um, mm-hmm. the mechanics, if you will. Give us some examples of some of your clients and and put some meat behind this this perspective. I mean, give us some real world examples of how this technique um, can can take a chronic painful situation and and flip it over. Right. So there's a sequence. Um, I wrote a book called Back in Control, A Surgeon's Roadmap About a Chronic Pain. And I've learned through a lot of podcasts not to, tr- not to try to teach the whole project on the air because it's, it's, it's not hard, but there's lots of layers to it. So my recommendation first, just get the book. It gives you the framework for the discussion. In other words, it explains how chronic pain evolves. So it's a memorized set of circuits in the brain. It goes to the emotional center. It creates physical symptoms. And there's a sequence that I call based on awareness, hope, forgiveness, and play. And you have to be aware of the problem before you can solve it. So there's awareness part of it. You understand chronic pain. You understand the nature of the problem. You understand the nature of the solutions. And then there's lots of people have gotten better. So people in chronic pain lose hope. And so without hope, we actually know that lack of hope actually causes inflammation. So there's a paper out of Texas that shows that the mental constructs that cause um, inflammation are lack of hope, despair, negative affect, social isolation, all cause inflammation. So again, remember, anxiety is the word that describes the inflammation, not the cause. So we know that by social connection, by regaining optimism and hope, that your body's inflammatory response starts to go down. So the sequence starts with understanding the problem, and then providing hope. And then what happens, you start learning how to regulate your body's chemistry. And so I'm going to go back to the anxiety just for a second, is that the first, there's three parts to it. The first part is understanding anxiety is what you have, it's a gift, it's not who you are. So I ask people to visualize a large thermometer on the opposite wall and say, look, if you feel agitated or nervous, just visualize that thermometer going up and then just say, tell yourself you have the, I have an elevated sympathetic nervous system or have an elevated stress response and just use the tools that, that you'll learn to actually start dropping down the gauge. So again, it's what you have, it's not who you are. And so you get to separate your identity from the anxiety. That's number one. So that awareness alone makes a big difference. So if you have these uncomfortable survival sensations, you don't have you don't have to put your identity or feel bad about feeling destructive or whatever it takes to survive. Is that's your gift. So then I'm going to ask you a question. So anxiety is the sensation generated by this elevated stress response. It's not subject to rational control. So the question I ask, well, how do you decrease anxiety? And the answer is simply lower the stress chemicals. There's two categories of doing that. One is directly, and then one is through what's called neuroplasticity. So directly, is we've learned that there's a nerve called the vagus nerve, which is very anti-inflammatory. So we know little meditation techniques like just dropping your shoulders and relaxing, for instance, change of sensory input drops down the autonomic nervous system, and and it's anti-inflammatory. Breathing techniques, slow breathing, deep breathing, breathing through your nose, um, humming, all these stimulate the vagus nerve in a certain way, which is very anti-inflammatory. So those are ways of directly dropping down the inflammatory response. Exercise, very good correlation between exercise, regular regular exercise, and, and inflammation. So we know we should exercise for, quote, our health, 
but we don't really understand that you exercise also to drop down the inflammation. So just to review, again, you separate from anxiety, get rid of the word, just use elevated stress response. Then there's direct ways of dropping it down. And I'll talk about the third way in a second, but I just want to stop and make sure that we're still on the same page here because I'm covering a lot of ground here really quickly. So the bottom line is you want to lower your stress chemicals, lower the response, and there's ways of doing that directly. And then I want to talk about the neuroplasticity here in a second. So it's very doable. Um, but am I making sense so far to you? Well, absolutely. Very good uh, content. Keep going. Okay, okay good. So, okay, so you, you can directly lower the stress chemicals, but the other way you can deal with this, which is critical, is called neuroplasticity. Your brain changes every second, so you can actually stimulate your brain to change whatever direction you want. So remember, your brain's going to go wherever you place its attention, and what you're trying to do with neuroplasticity, instead of having threat, automatic stress response, you create a little bit of a space between the threat and the response. Remember, the automatic response is going to be survival. What you're going to do is create some space between the threat and the response, and in that space, you substitute. And as you substitute, it actually stimulates your brain to change structure. You structurally change your brain. So one of the tools we have people start out with um, is what's called expressive writing, which has been documented in over a 1,000 research papers to be effective, is that you simply write down your thoughts and you immediately destroy them. And it sounds simple. Again, over a 1,000 research papers document that, that it works. In my Rookie explanation for that is it's just a matter of separating from your thoughts. You tear them up for two reasons. First of all, you want to write with freedom. Remember, it's the most negative, crazy thoughts that you suppress. But you also don't want to analyze them because when people write, all these issues come up. They're not issues. They're just thoughts. So what the writing exercise it does is is there's three parts of neuroplasticity, which is awareness, separation, then redirecting. So what the expressive writing does, it creates an awareness and separation in one move. So that's it's always a starting point. It's not the solution, but it is always a starting point. And it is remarkably effective in actually changing your body's chemistry. We don't know why. We don't know why it's so effective, but it's always a starting point. So you have done awareness and separation in one move. I call it mechanical meditation. And then the third step, awareness, separation, reprogramming, is what I call active meditation. So while you're just sitting there, just drop your shoulders down for a second. Let your just feel the back of your chair. Take a deep breath in, and just listen to a sound. And what you're doing, you're placing your brain on a different sensation. So feel where you're sitting. Let your jaw muscles relax. Just let your shoulders relax. And what you're doing, you're changing the sensory input to the brain from racing thoughts, which creates tension, to a different physical sensation. Taste your food. Feel the breeze hear your footsteps. All those things change sensory input so you have less of an inflammatory output. So again, neuroplastic, there's the anxiety situation is you separate from it, understand it's your survival mechanism, it's what you have, it's a gift. Then there's direct ways of lowering the inflammatory response, and then there's the neuroplasticity way of dampening the response. Well, I, I like this, and uh, I mean, you started off talking about 22% success rate with um, traditional spinal surgery. Right. Now, tell us about uh, some real-world examples, like perhaps uh, a client's come to you and they've had multiple 
surgeries to no effect. I mean, give us some real-world examples of the result of of this technique. So I'm gonna I'm gonna tell one story of hundreds of them, but I'm gonna we talked about your story a little bit, which also is very parallel with this one, and also my own personal story. But every person that heals, it's always around anger. It's always around processing anger. There are very specific ways of doing that, and people do it in their own way, and it sounds like you did this very nicely. But this friend of mine, Tom, who's now a friend of mine, who is now 67 years old, he's a real estate developer, he got in a car accident you know, 25 years ago, had some neck pain, and started developing progressive back pain, neck pain, different shoulder pains, etc. So he became addicted to drugs, alcoholic, he lost his marriage, then he started... Um, then he had, in 20 years, he underwent 27 surgeries. And then he had a suicide attempt. So my scenario is that I always thought a situation like that was unsalvageable. And so I always thought there's a certain amount of trauma a person could take before they couldn't come back. So I will just jump to the end of the story, and he's actually fine. He's, he's been fine for four years. He says he has never felt better in his life, even before he started having chronic pain. But what happened after a suicide attempt about five years ago, he was in Palm Strings. He was talking to a rehab doctor who asked the question is, well, why, what are you angry about? And Tom goes, what are you talking about? I'm not angry. And remember, he had 27 surgeries, suicide attempt, and he's telling this doctor that he wasn't angry. Anyway, the doctor wouldn't let up. And all of a sudden, about two weeks into the thing, he just broke through and just, be, and just let it loose. Or I wouldn't say let it loose. He just connected with it. And within two weeks after he connected with the anger, started to process it, then he did ongoing work with with my concepts. Um, he's been pain-free now for about four years. Just talked to him this morning. So he's excited about it. And the reason why I just thought with the amount of time, repetition, that much trauma, 27 surgeries, scar tissue, I just did not think that was possible. I have another woman. She's 85 years old now, 55 years of chronic pain. She's been pain-free now for six years. And the scenario for her, remember, is threat versus safety. The essence of chronic pain is ongoing, sustained threat. The essence of the solution is teaching you tools to regulate your body's chemistry so you feel safe and you are safe. But in her 30s, her first husband committed suicide. Then in 2008, her son committed suicide. Nobody ever asked her her questions, what's going on? So she started working with me back in 2012, and we had a struggle for about a year and a half. And she's been pain-free now for, you know, at least five years. And she's 85 years old. I actually did not think at her age you could do this. But what you're doing, you're stimulating your brain to change structure. So you're going from a painful set of circuits in your brain to a non-painful set of circuits in your brain. And these new circuits don't have to, don't have, to have pain in them. So you're, you're stimulating your, your brain to actually change structure through neuroplasticity and also calm down your chemical response wow the, and, and to talk about such a profound response uh with somebody who's 80 years old it, it really you know the the plasticity of the brain and the ability to reprogram yourself if you will um at any stage in your life there's there's really just no reason to uh, put up with a chronically painful situation if if there's tools out there now to to unravel it, if you will. Right. 
Well, I mean, what happened to me, I didn't quit my practice by, I, I say I, I quit my practice by choice, but I was seeing three to five patients every week having these horrible operations done or recommended and failing. And again, when you fail a spine surgery, nobody wants to take care of you afterwards. Your surgeon won't, other surgeons won't. Your rehab doctors don't have time. Primary care is overwhelmed. So not only are you worse, nobody wants to take care of you. I call it the surgical scrap heap. So it's sort of a disaster. So I've seen that three to five times every week that I was watching hundreds of patients go to pain-free with minimal interventions. So this is a very self-directed process. Again, it evolved from my own 15-year experience in chronic pain, which is a long time to be in chronic pain. But my ears don't ring. My feet don't burn. I don't have migraines. I don't have anxiety. Um, I'm not perfect. In other words, I get flared up and I get triggered, so to speak. But I have the tools to calm myself back down, and I'm just not crippled by anxiety or pain anymore. But I was I was in that hole for 15 solid years. That's why I call it the abyss. It's very dark. There's no hope. Nobody is telling you what's going on. You don't know when it's going to end. The research shows that the effect of chronic pain on a, the impact of chronic pain on a person's life is equivalent to having terminal cancer. And it's actually worse in a way because, at least with cancer, you know the diagnosis. In chronic pain, nobody's telling you the diagnosis. And what's happened now in medicine is that they now have a new term called medically unexplained symptoms. Have you heard of this term before? No, no I have not. Wow. So what's happening, if a doctor can't find some reason for you to have pain, they sort of patch on the head and say, well, you just have to live with it. You have to, we'll just help you live with it as best you can. And then it's sort of implied amongst physicians pretty clearly, well, this person's a drug seeker, they're malinger, they're lazy, or they're faking it, or is it, or psychological, or whatever, whatever it is, and that's not true. So they call it medically unexplained symptoms. So here's where things have to get really serious here, is that everything's wrong. You're in a constant threat. Your body has a physiological response with elevated inflammatory markers, metabolism, the whole thing. Your body's out of whack. Your body's completely out of balance. That translates into physical symptoms. So that's what, sort of the final insult to the patients that get this diagnosis where you have medically unexplained symptoms, implying that it's not real, that it's psychological, we can't really help you. To me, it's just absolutely unacceptable. Everything is wrong. Everything is absolutely explained by the current neuroscience. We know exactly what the problem is. By knowing the problem, we actually know the solution. Medicine right now is ignoring that data. Well, you know, and you shared your own example of 15 years of chronic pain. And when right. I opened the show, when I opened up the show, I was talking about, sure, we we know ourselves. Come on, come on, we know ourselves. There can't be some hidden mechanism in us that we're not aware of. And like your example, 15 years of chronic pain, and 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 yet it's solvable. It's resolvable, right. but right. you didn't know about that, and that—that's—that's that's nope. what I'm getting at with this. How powerful this topic is! How powerful! I mean, to to live in chronic pain, nobody should have to do that. Nope. And what happens with my patients? They actually go through this. So, for instance, I have a lot of patients that have, that have had surgeries. And, you know, they work with me, and they find out that the solution is actually disturbingly simple. And so if you're considering spine surgery, I did write the book called Do You Really Need Spine Surgery? And what it does, it puts your situation into one of four quadrants. 
It looks at the anatomy that's being considered for surgery, and it's also looking at the state of your nervous system. So by categorizing your nervous system and by categorizing the anatomy, you're in one of four quadrants. So what it does, it helps you assess the state of your nervous system. So if you do surgery in the presence of a hypervigilant or agitated nervous system, the data shows really clearly you can make the pain worse any surgery, any part of the body, up to 40% of the time. Because what happens, your nervous system is already on fire, and you start plugging in body parts, and what happens, you create chronic pain at the new surgical site or make the pain worse at the old site. So the data is really clear that it's really critical to calm down the nervous system first before you do surgery. So you have the state of the nervous system as being either calm or hypervigilant. Then you have anatomy that you either can see that's clearly the cause of the problem or you can't really see the cause of the problem. The biggest problem that most surgeries being done that's feeling is people are having situations where they have a very stressed nervous system, their chemical balance is way off, their anatomy is not very identifiable. So what happens if you operate in a situation where you can't really tell what the problem is and you operate anyway and the nervous system is already sensitized, it has almost a 100% chance of failing. But it's like going to the dentist with mouth pain and the dentist doesn't really know what the problem is. So the dentist knows that this tooth is infected and pulls a tooth. That's what I call a structural problem. You pull the tooth, the pain goes away. If you go to the dentist with mouth pain and don't know where the pain is coming from, you start pulling teeth, feeling cavities, whatever. It could be your sinuses. could be gum disease. I mean, who knows what it is. But you don't want your dentist to go in there and just start messing around with your teeth, Right. So what happens is that you have to know the diagnosis really clearly before spine surgery makes sense. And I am not against spine surgery. So if something needs to be surgically operated on, do it. But we also noticed that we did what's called prehab. We actually calm people down for about 8 to 10 weeks before surgery, every patient, every time, from a major deformity situations, which can be up to 12 hours of surgery. I would do this rehab for about a year before I did the surgery. And what would happen, which was shocking to me, is that I had about 120 patients with very severe pinched nerves, had matching symptoms, they would have done well with surgery. But as they put them through this rehab process before surgery, what the data says to do, they got better. They canceled their surgeries. At the end of my practice, I was operating on less than 5% of the patients that I saw because they kept getting better. There wasn't that like they were living with the pain. The pain disappeared. So I was not expecting that. I just was not expecting that, so I was shocked. So it turns out that the state of your nervous system determines the state of your body's chemistry. And when your body chemistry is on fire, it doubles the nerve conduction. You have higher nerve conduction speed, and you feel the pain more. As you calm down the body's response, when the nerve conduction slows down dramatically, pain disappears. Well, um, would this apply to other ailments like rheumatoid arthritis or Alzheimer's or, I mean, it, this sounds like a, such a fundamental um, attribute of our, our human psyche or, or physiology. Did you notice uh, recovery with other effects besides uh, chronic back pain? Well, yeah, back pain. So I really try to come away from being a spine surgeon. So there's over 30 different symptoms that respond to the concepts, maybe a lot more. So we do know autoimmune disorders like rheumatoid arthritis, psoriasis, um, ankylosing spinalitis, that these colitises definitely respond to the principles because they're all inflammatory disorders, right? So, again, there's over 30 symptoms of the sustained threat 
I had 17 of them at the same time. As I mentioned before, my ears were ringing. My ears don't ring, ring anymore. I mean, my ears were ringing for over 20 years. It was horribly annoying, and it's gone. Never, never, ever would have expected that. But what we think is that, again, as you calm down your body's chemistry, it changes the nerve conduction. So whereas my ears were ringing before with a slower nerve conduction, they don't ring anymore. I don't have migraine headaches anymore. Again, we know with migraines, it changes the blood supply, which is a dilation, which is a constriction. And again, under stress, your vessels constrict. Then when you relax, they dilate and you have a migraine headache. Your brain also has inflammatory cells being secreted in the brain itself. Again, tension headaches, muscle pain. So irritable bowel syndrome, spastic bladder, burning in the feet, skin rashes, all these are physical symptoms created by sustained elevations of these stress chemicals. So the answer is yes. So you mentioned Alzheimer's, which is tricky because we think you can prevent Alzheimer's by using the principles we talked about. Once you have Alzheimer's, I don't think that's reversible, but we're still, we've discussed that you know, way down the line here is a possibility, even though we don't really see it being a probability. I, mean, I think once the damage is done, it's done. But we know in cardiovascular disease, which is also inflammatory disorder, if you go to a low inflammatory vegetarian plant-based diet, you can reverse the disease. And as a surgeon, I didn't used to believe that. I'm going, well, just put a stint in. Why, why are you screwing out this diet thing? But you can see it on the angiograms. You actually watch these constrictions disappear with a plant-based diet. I'm going, well, this doesn't make any sense. Well, now that I understand the autoimmune, the autonomic nervous system modulating the inflammatory response, it makes all the sense in the world. So you go to a plant-based diet, which is anti-inflammatory, it dramatically reverses the cardiovascular disease. You know, and in fact, we do know, by the way, that strong, structured, diet-based interventions and other interventions for cardiac disease are actually more effective than stents. Wow. Well, now, the elephant in the room, um, 2020 and the, and the COVID um, situation, there's, there's so many people that have a, such an immense amount of anxiety right. about this the situation. How... How does this apply to the, the 2020 era, if you will? Yeah. So here, here's a paradox. I mean, this is a, a big problem. So the number one way to create anxiety is uncertainty. And unfortunately, the paradox is, is that, again, that's a stress response. The anxiety represents an elevated inflammatory reaction. And the anxiety, which is appropriate and understandable, actually fires up the immune system it elevates your inflammatory markers, it increases your chance of getting sick, and then if you get sick, when you have high inflammatory levels, as this inflammatory response goes up over this threshold, you have a higher chance of dying. So the more appropriate your anxiety and frustration, the higher the chance of actually dying from the COVID. So I did write a book called Plan A. It's called Thriving and Surviving COVID-19. And I can put it, I can email it to you. I'm going to finish it up this week, the second edition. But it gives you 12 categories of things you can do to lower your inflammatory markers, which, by the way, are the same things to do to lower chronic pain. They turn out to be the same thing. And what you're doing, you're taking well-established medical treatments and just applying them systematically. And the elephant in the room from the COVID perspective is that almost everybody that is dying from COVID has pre-existing conditions. 
where people are saying, well, it's just because you're not as healthy. That's not the answer. The answer is you have higher, every chronic disease we talked about has is because of elevated inflammation. All these diseases are treatable. And so it's time for our medical model to go from illness to wellness. So what these 12 things include is, first of all, processing anxiety. Tools are there. Um, I'm going to ask you about your anger in a second. Anger is a huge one. The third process is expressive writing. The next one is an anti-inflammatory diet. Then the taking a concept of quit stimulating your nervous system. So stop watching the news, quit complaining, quit being judgmental, quit gossiping, just be nice. Because what happens when you're agitated, you've actually fired up your immune system and actually decrease your chances of survival. So watching the news right now, and, and I'll limit myself to maybe half an hour a day now because I do want to know what's going on. A lot of people, understandably, are glued to the television sets so you're sitting there all day long looking at your TV, and guess what? You're stimulating your autonomic nervous system to fire up the inflammation. So again, another tool is a calm thing. So there's also a bunch of breathing techniques you can do to lower inflammatory markers. Um, so anyway, those are all outlined in this in this book called Plan A, called Thriving and Surviving COVID-19. And, uh, and so, yeah, in this day and age, with the COVID crisis, why it's actually a huge factor as far as improving your survival. Well, very nice. We, we have about eight minutes left. Um, well, I, the, the root question I have, and I kind of get the answer, is how do, how do we flip this over in, and, like, teach ourselves through education in the elementary school, middle school, high school. How do we um, educate humanity? I mean, what curriculum, what understanding could we introduce into the growing up process where we understand this and we don't go so flipping far down the road, like for yourself, 15 years of chronic pain, and yet right. the answer is is within your own persona, your own psyche. I mean, right. how, how do we how do we change the culture of our culture and and bring these tools online much earlier and and eradicate such a I mean. Uh, you said how much uh, the industry makes billions of dollars on right. on this, and and yet the solution is is right before us. It just right. It's kind of frustrating so I, to watch. Yeah, I started a nonprofit, and I'm happy to email you the documents. But I started a nonprofit about seven years ago, actually bringing these concepts right into the school system. But just the simple tools, like creating a buddy system, teaching these kids breathing exercises, doing expressive writing, um, not gossiping, not complaining, just teaching kids how to auto-regulate their body's chemistry would change the world, right? So it turns out the classroom is the ideal place to do this. It doesn't take extra time. One of my friend's daughters was a first-grade school teacher, and she started the expressive writing in her class, and parents are coming up to her up to her going, what's going on? Why? Why? Because their kids were so much better behaved. Because remember, when you're threatened, you have this, you know, this deep sensation that's unpleasant, and these kids don't know what to do with it. And so learning how to process anxiety and frustration right there in preschool and kindergarten on would be hugely effective in actually changing the world. 
So that was my mission at the time. I, I had to stop it because the person I hired to run the nonprofit wasn't ready to do it. Um, I haven't given it up. I'm actually getting ready to fire it up again. I actually considered taking this right into the school systems. And again, it's a bit of a story, but the workshops that we have done are the same thing you put right into the school system. So yeah, it would be a huge factor to teach kids how to process their anxiety and frustration at a very early age. Well, and it's, I mean, the the plasticity of the brain, from listening to this episode, you could introduce it to your teenage kids or yourself or your spouse. I mean, right. it, it, right. it, it's quite reachable, if you will, achievable, if you will. Yeah, a few of my friends have had their seven and eight year olds start the expressive writing, really nice results. It just calms things down. You don't have to worry about discipline much anymore. It's a huge, huge difference, just that simple tool called expressive writing. Um, but yeah, there, and there's lots of things around anger and forgiveness that I'd love to talk to you about maybe in a future podcast. But um, yeah, just to learn how to regulate your body's chemistry gives you a sense of safety. And once you're not at the mercy of your body's chemistry, then you're able to actually navigate life on your own terms. So, yeah, the tools are not very hard. People have not gone to major pain clinics. It's mostly self-directed. And, you know, what I would encourage people to do, and I, I hate sounding like a salesman because I wish I hadn't written the book in a way, but honestly, the book represents my 15-year experience out of chronic pain. I learned this a millimeter at a time, mostly by failure, and eventually started to gravitate towards successes. So the book represents the evolution, and that's why I think it's been so effective because it does represent exactly what's going on from the ground floor up. So it's called Back in Control, A Surgeon and Roadmap Out of Chronic Pain. What the surgical book is, it's a quicker read. It also encapsulates the Back in Control book in about two chapters. So it's a really concise explanation of it. I just developed what's called The Doc Journey. It's called Direct Your Own Care. Um, you can access it at www.thedocjourney.com. And what it is is an evolution based on awareness, hope, forgiveness, and play. It's based on our workshops, which have been extremely effective. Also, the same process we put into the school system, if we can get that far. And so it's called the Doc Journey. And, again, since we're direct your own care, there's a sequence of emails and teaching videos along the way that just take you through a process and sequence that's really critical. And then finally, what will be out here in about two weeks is an app that actually goes along with the whole process, too. So, again, it's about 90% self-directed. Decide to have a coach. I'm not against psychology, by the way. In fact, I encourage it, but it has to be in the right place. It has to help you move forward. It gets you moving forward the direction you want. But basically, it's mostly a self-directed process. And another thing that came to mind is uh, war veterans. I mean, how much of their symptoms are are based on um, the burden of what they're carrying with them from their past? Right. I mean, uh, right. There's just so many ways this can be applied to our culture, and it's just to put like for yourself to put up with pain for 15 years. Life's too damn short to to not put the effort in, and that's what I like about episodes like this is you're bringing a perspective to a chronic pain arena, and and. The, the metrics, the effectiveness of what you're accomplishing is is so vastly improved over the 22% of the mainstream. It it's just like I'm I'm delighted to have conversations like this. 
Yeah, I mean, I'm excited about it. I mean, I mean, again, most physicians don't like treating chronic pain, including myself. And by, but if you have somebody with no hope, then not only do you give them hope back, they do take their lives back, relationships get restored, families come back together, but they thrive. And that's why I wrote my booklet is called Plan A, Thrive and Survive. We find out when you learn how to thrive, you live longer. And so you have to learn how to thrive first, and then your health takes care of itself. Right. Well, now you've mentioned uh, your books and web pages. Is there anything else uh, as far as your platform that you want to share with our audience? Well, again, I just right now I'm doing a public health messaging. I would ask people if they're interested, do take a look. Also, please talk to your friends and relatives. I mean, my, I'm with you. I mean, I have to let go trying to save the world, but this would change the world. So what I pull myself back into doing is talking to you, talking to your audience, doing one person at a, at a time. I have a weekly group with physicians and scientists that we talk about this whole process once a week. So we're going really deep into chronic disease, coming up with some very innovative paradigms. So I'm excited about that. So I'm just digging in as deep as I can go, one person at a time, one podcast at a time. And then I'm going to just try to create a bit of a grassroots effort to get this thing going. So I would just ask people, if you're interested, please look at it. Please contact me if you have questions. We're delighted to work with people. I love talking to people. And it's just I get very energized and inspired by people getting better. And I also feel honored and privileged. I mean, I went through a horrible experience. I... It's a very humble experience, humble to the point that you ever can never not be humble. So I'm very honored and privileged to be able to give this back to people, and it's been a very rewarding phase of my life. Well, and you need to, well, you don't need to, but um, 2020 changed the dynamic, the metric of how people get information. I mean, right. the idea of, of Zoom calls, the idea of online, the idea of of, I mean, the whole metric has been changed. So what I would suggest to you is to um, perhaps take a step back and look at that new metric for the, the online platform because um, the vast majority of humanity has been turned on its head. And, yep. and in, the, in the plasticity of that change, new uh, mechanisms, new ways to connect with your message and the people that would benefit from it that didn't exist last year. Much more people are more inclined to get online and listen. So um, if your metrics change over over as a result of this year, I wouldn't be a bit surprised. No, that's a great great observation. Uh, That that would be great. So, yeah, I'm committed. Um, I just love seeing – I mean, two things drive me. One of them is the incredible success we see. People do thrive. But also what drives me as much or even more is just sort of the horrible suffering caused by us doing things to people that shouldn't be done. And so we're not only not not, – we're actually making them worse. And the potential potential right there at ground zero before we make that decision to do a major intervention in, in any field, cardiac, urology, whatever it is, you have a chance right there to make the decision to get better without surgery. Or if you do the surgery, the surgery works much better, but these are very self-directed, simple tools. Every one of them is based on solid medical data. And so my mantra for a long time has just been implement what we know. We already know this stuff, so let's just systematically implement what we already know. 
Right. Well, very nice. Um, we have a few minutes left. Do you want to share any closing thoughts with our audience? Well, looking, I, I'd like to go back into the essence of chronic disease in general, which I sort of skipped over early on, is that every sensory body is created by, you know, the, your body process and the environment. But there's two factors. One of them is the state of the body, your organism. So if you're born with an abusive environment and have poor coping skills, that's a problem. You may have higher coping skills, but then you have the environment. So if the environmental stresses overwhelm the coping skills, then you have physical symptoms. So what we're doing in medicine, we're treating the symptoms. We're not looking at the root cause of the environment versus the coping mechanism of the person. So it's like working, it's like trying to put out an oil well fire with a fire hose. You're treating the symptoms on the outside. With an oil well fire, they set off an explosion at the bottom of it to deprive the fire of oxygen. So as you learn to understand a person, so what's happening in medicine, we don't have time to to learn the patient. We don't understand the environment. And so it has to come back down to actually listening and talking and working on working on that interaction actually solve disease. So that's my personal message to get out there is to start paying doctors to talk to the patients, start having the patients demand to be heard and be listened to, and it's such a solvable problem. Right. Well, time's pretty much up. I want to thank you, David, for being our guest tonight. I have thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Thanks for being our guest. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. This was very, very enjoyable for me also. So thank you again for the opportunity for me to do this. We've been talking with Dr. David Hanscom, and the topic tonight has been, do you really need spine surgery? Like I said at the beginning of the show, do you really know yourself? The If I think back about before the cosmic 2x4 cracked me open um, 25 years ago, I was going through life thinking thinking I knew what was going on. But I had no clue. I had no clue how much emotions were totally crashing my life. Um, Emotions were collapsing vast amounts of my choices, of my awareness. I had suppressed emotions in my psyche that I was not aware of at all. And the cosmic two by four, that moment of awakening was when I unexpectedly connected with this suppressed emotion and released it out of my psyche. When I released it out of my psyche, my life changed. I would not have had this radio show for coming up on a decade, writing the books I've written. Um, making the material available for people to discover what I discovered accidentally. You don't have to wait for the train wreck. You can look at your life as a very pliable, very changeable, very... um, You can make uh, effective change in your life, but you can't do it without awareness. There's an... uh, At the New Human Living... Dot com website, there's an emotions audio CD. I take an, an hour and really delve into what I would have loved. 
I would have loved to have known that 10 years prior to that cosmic 2x4. I could have got a hold of my life so many years earlier. And like uh, David said tonight, 15 years of chronic pain, and then to turn around and find that the solution was within his own persona. Hey, it's always a pleasure spending this time with you, the listener. I, I very much enjoy bringing you guests, bringing you episodes, bringing you topics that help you recognize the, the power that you are. Every one of us is a, as a human persona has an infinite amount of potential. And I just love being a vehicle to help you put a fulcrum on that to get some effect out of it. I'm your host, Les Jensen. Always a pleasure. Thank you for spending this time with us. Until next time. This has been a New Human Living Radio broadcast to bring your soul's inspiration into effect and live your life wide open. Check out our host, Les Jensen's latest book, Citizen King, The New Age of Power, at newhumanliving.com. Thanks for listening.